tattooed by Alabama. A battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live to tape online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, we take a look at the year that was for the show, and we bring you some more best ofs, from child labor to Medicaid expansion and culture war in public schools. We've got clips running the gamut on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today, unfortunately... Uh, As I said before, this is a pre-tape, so I cannot hear you or see you right now. However, I would encourage you to send us a text or leave us a voicemail, and we can respond on our next live show on January the 6th. That number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap up here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, you can find us anywhere you find anything online. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, and wherever you get your podcasts, all at The Valley Labor Report. We've also got a website where you can see some of our written work, tvlr.fm. And if you'd like to subscribe to our newsletter so that you get Boss Watch and Last Week in Southern Labor in your inbox every single week, you can send us a note at tvlr.fm contact. Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to make a one-time or monthly recurring donation, you can go to tvlr.fm donate to help us keep doing what we're doing. And if you're more comfortable with Patreon, we've got that too. You can go to patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report and sign up there. Uh, we do have a small fundraiser going through the new year at tvlr.fm slash postage. So if you'd like to make an extra donation in the Christmas spirit, you can go there. Uh, we're wanting to ramp up even more in 2024, uh, reach more people, build new relationships, and help bring you all of the most relevant labor news. And part of that is going to be a uh, little letter writing campaign. So we're wanting to raise about $1,000 to pay for that campaign, our printing and postage costs. If you're a member of a union, then uh, please also think about getting your local or international or both to sponsor the show. We could not do it without our union sponsors, and we really appreciate the support. That's right. And let me add a disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions expressed in this program belong solely to their author and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. We welcome all of our listeners, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, Unclaimed Mysteries Internet Radio, WVNN, WZZA, WHIV, or through your favorite podcast app. 
We are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network and encourage our listeners to check that out. And I just wanted to take a moment to sort of uh, do some reflections here. It is the end of the year, and end of the year is always a good time to reflect, to think of what went well and what didn't this year, a time to be grateful and thankful for what we do have, and to imagine how things could be even better. It's a time for us to do a reset and to look ahead to the new year with all the potential that entails. I have a lot to reflect on, from the Valley Labor Report to my personal journey to the labor movement as a whole. I want to thank everyone who has supported me personally and professionally. This year has only reiterated for me the need to build and sustain relationships. Thank you to everyone who helps make the Valley Labor Report happen. All of you who tune in, all of you who share, all of you who donate, all of you who've appeared as guests, all of you who've served as mentors and advisors, and you know who you are. It truly is a collective effort. Special thanks to the TVLR crew, Joe, Ben, Tahira, Spencer, Jeff, and of course my boy Jacob. It's teamwork that makes all this happen. Between buying radio time, renting the studio, paying for labor, it costs a few grand each month for our current operations and output. That only happens through a combination of individual donors and labor-friendly advertisers, and we are deeply grateful for all who have supported this project financially. We know times are tough, and there's a lot of good causes asking for money. I appreciate the support, and I hope we can get more support in the year ahead. I've always believed we need our own media as working people. The mainstream media is, at best, tainted by corporate and political interests. Then there's an entire right-wing media, media ecosystem, spanning from talk radio to TV to streaming to YouTube and TikTok and other social media. The amount of toxic BS pumped into people's brains is scary to think about. Think of the billions invested in producing and distributing propaganda to the masses. We deserve better. We need alternatives. We can't continue to be so outplayed in this arena. Bosses have media. Workers should too. That's why we do what we do. We're a grassroots media collective dedicated to amplifying the voices of the working class in the American South. It's why we devote our time, energy, and resources to coming on the air every week to spread a message of solidarity, a message of collective organization, a message of the interracial people power we need to transform the South and build the better world that is not only possible, but necessary. What if solidarity dominated Southern airwaves? What if our unions and allies invested in labor media in a big way? There was a time in this country when you were likely to have a union newspaper for your area. Now you're lucky if you even have any newspaper at all. Now is the time to go all in. Public approval of unions is at an all-time high. Labor is resurgent in a way we haven't seen in our lifetimes. If ever there was a time for the labor movement to invest in getting out its message, this is it. So in that vein, as Jacob mentioned earlier, we'll be launching a fundraising campaign at the start of the year. We're also going to be reaching out looking for new sponsors as well. We're hoping to grow the project and take it to another level. For those of you who don't know, we air live on WVNN, the right-wing talk radio station in Huntsville, Athens, every Saturday from 9.30 to 11 a.m. with our overtime after 11 airing online on YouTube and Facebook. 
We got our start on WVNN, birthplace of Sean Hannity and home to all sorts of reactionary propaganda that we find objectionable. But we think it's important to get a different perspective out there to multiple audiences. We're happy that a portion of the show is replayed during the week on WZZA, the historic black radio station in Northwest Alabama, and on WHIV, a community radio station in New Orleans. We release the full episode on Spotify, Apple, and the various podcasting apps. So please subscribe to us on your app of choice and give us a good review. And throughout the week, clips of the show are released as standalone videos on YouTube and in some cases TikTok. So if there's a specific segment or interview that you want to find, we try to make it easy for you. Just do us a favor and hit subscribe and like. All of our content is free. We believe in that. So your engagement on social media and podcasting apps really does help, and that's a quick, easy, free way to support the program. In 2023, we saw our YouTube audience grow significantly, with our subscribers more than doubling and our live streams regularly getting five to ten times what we got at the start of the year. We launched our Shop Talk episodes dedicated to labor education, history, and training, We received a lot of engagement and phone calls throughout our coverage of the Teamsters and UAW contract fights starting this summer. Huge struggles with implications for the South and the nation. We reported live on location in Anniston, where the very first union card of the New Flyer Workers United drive there with IUECWA was signed live on our show. We have had so many fantastic guests from rank-and-file workers and activists to union leaders and staffers to writers, journalists, scholars, and historians, even comedians and a presidential candidate. We held our first successful live show at Shenanigans Comedy Theater in Huntsville and look forward to future live events. We held a 32-hour fundraiser marathon and raised over $15,000 for striking Southern workers. And our work was featured in a variety of other outlets, from AL.com to America's Workforce Radio. We are so grateful that our audience has continued to grow and that our message is resonating with folks. You know, there's going to be a lot of media and political spending in 2024. We hope folks will see the value in this project and what we're trying to accomplish. We have some great things planned for 2024, including improving our programming, some amazing guests, special projects, and more. We also have the opportunity to expand and offer more content on more radio stations, if we can secure the funding for it. And we want to hear from y'all. What do y'all want to see in 2024? How can we improve the project? What guests do you want us to interview? Your feedback is essential. If you believe it's important to have our own media of, by, and for the Southern working class, please consider supporting us however you can, and please share with your co-workers, friends, family, and neighbors. We know there's a lot of good causes to support, and our audience are working folks with limited incomes. So if you can find value in our project and you're willing to chip in a couple bucks, it would mean a lot. Like I said, we've got some great stuff planned, and as, as we grow the show and we grow our content, and we can't do it without you. Yeah, I appreciate those reflections, Adam. And it, it really is um, uh, it, it really is an honor to be able to do this kind of thing, um, to be able to 
to uh, you know, and and it gives me a little bit of uh, or a lot of imposter syndrome in a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of time uh, because in, in a way this program does function as the mouthpiece, the voice for. Uh, labor for the labor movement in uh, at least the state of Alabama and and to a certain extent uh, even the South there are um, there are not uh, just a whole lot of people in the South in kind of the same area as us uh, doing doing the same kind of thing uh, that we do and so uh, so in a certain to a certain extent that that title kind of falls to us by default um, so there there's definitely a lot of imposter syndrome there because like I've said on the show I do not feel like I have any any unique um, analytical abilities or insight um, but I do, uh, I, I feel like I see, you know, a lot of the same things that everybody else sees. Uh, unfairness, uh, a real fundamental unfairness in our economy um, with the rich at the top making too much off of our backs, uh, having all of the control and giving us uh, little to none. And uh, I don't think that's right and I want to do what I can to change that and I I do think that part of that is uh, part of the part part of the project to change society to make society more fair uh, to re uh, to shift the balance of power from the wealthy from the owning class to the working class is educational and so since nobody else is doing it um, you know, we have we have said we are willing, and and that's and that's kind of what we're doing, and and so uh, and th- that people have have put their trust in in us through um, their financial support, um, through uh, you know sharing and listening and interacting and and being willing to uh, come on as guests. You know, I mean that that um, all of that is just it it is. It's a huge honor to have that, you know, because for individuals, you know, we there are so like you said, there are so many organizations and causes that are competing for um, uh, for donations and working people just don't have, you know, a lot of money to throw around. And so for the people that do that, um, it, it, it means a lot to us. And then for uh, the unions that sponsor us, uh, they're in a, a, you know, in, in a lot of senses, they're in a similar boat, especially the local unions that support us. Um, you know, all of those expenditures have to be approved by the membership or some sort of uh, democratically accountable committee or body or leadership and uh and and that money also comes um indirectly uh or you know pretty directly from working people it comes from the dues that they pay and so it's all um it's it's just it's a huge honor to to be able to be that that voice to a certain extent and that mouthpiece and um you know what what we want to do with the platform that we have created with the cooperation of everybody involved in the project and everybody that supports us is to do what we can to um, not have us as the spotlight, but use the platform to shift the spotlight to the working people on the ground who are making moves, who are building a better society, who are uh, you know winning for themselves and their coworkers and their communities, uh, and then. And, and and by virtue of that, 
elevating them and their work and, uh, and, and praising them and then educating the other people about, like, this can be done. Look, these people are doing it. Here's how you do it. Right. You can do literally the same thing that they're doing. And so that's that's kind of how we see the, the that's that's kind of how we see the project and 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 we're very thankful that that so many people um, agree with us that that's a valuable thing and that that we're doing uh, at least a, a passable job <laughs> on it. Um, and like Adam said, we do have uh, we, we have some big plans for 2024. We have put out some uh, um, some feelers to uh, to some international unions um, to gauge their interest in funding such a uh, uh, such big plans. Um, and uh, and so we'll see if if there is interest in in doing something more with this project from, uh, you know, from from the people who, uh, you know, who do have kind of the power of the purse to a certain extent. And uh, and if that sounds like something that would be interesting to you and you are in a position where, you know, you have some money to spend and you have some uh uh, some room in the budget, uh, then then please do reach out to us, um, and and I can talk to uh, uh, talk you through what we're thinking about and uh, and and the costs that we have in mind uh, for uh, you know the these additional expansions, potential expansions of the project, and um, or if you know anybody, uh, you know tell them to hit us up. Twenty twenty four is um, you know in addition to being a big year for uh, hopefully. For the program for TVLR, uh, it is going to be an election year. Um, there is going to be just a you know an obscene, uh, genuinely obscene amount of money running around um, to uh, get people to believe in or vote for this or that thing or person or cause, and, uh, and, and, you know, so if, if that obscene amount of money is going to be rolling around anyway, uh, some of it may as well go to, uh, to folks who don't hate working people. Uh, that's kind of, that's kind of our pitch, uh, when we're talking to these folks about, uh, some of the election spending that, that, um, uh, that's going to be happening. Um, and also it will hopefully be a big year for, the labor movement, uh, building on the things that happened in 2023 and the wins that working people were able to chalk up in 2023. Um, we're hoping that that's just the beginning uh, of labor's resurgence in this country, and um, and and uh, we're gonna we're gonna do a, a bit more of a deep dive on um, you know some of our thoughts generally about the labor movement uh, year in review. Uh, and th this is just we're talking about our program, uh, the year interview. But uh, when we come back, um, I know that we're going to have a lot of thoughts about the year that was in terms of um, labor power and uh, and the strides that working people have made. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But uh, uh, but but that'll be it. Um, I just want to say thank you again to everybody that has has listened and supported and shared uh, our program in the last year. And I look forward to seeing you again next year. Yeah, absolutely. Echo all your comments and uh, something you said that I wanted to just pull out, which is like, yeah, it's not about us. We're not media professionals. We're not media people. Uh, we're not trying to have media careers. We are uh, labor union activists, and that's what we do. Um, 
and this is just kind of part of that broader project of building people power here in North Alabama. Um, and, and that's something I, I want folks to realize that, uh, you know, of course, we're not always going to get it right. We're not always perfect. Uh, you're not going to agree with everything that we say. Uh, but we do our best to prevent, uh, to present information that's honest, that's accurate, that is really speaking to the interest of working people. Uh, because we are the majority as working class people. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily know that uh, from a lot of the media that's out there, uh, but we try to speak to that, and, and we try to really unite people around our common interests that we have as working people, um, and, and that's what we do outside of this project, right, through our roles in uh, the Labor Council and our unions, uh, and it's what we're trying to do here as part of this project as well, uh, because, you know, like I said, I mean, the bad guys have media. There, There's so much garbage that is pumped out over the airwaves. And uh, unfortunately, those of us who believe in solidarity, who believe in working class organization and building a working class movement, uh, we have got to revive media that can speak to our interest, that can educate folks, that can inform folks, that can entertain folks. That's um, why, you know, we're, we're part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. It's why we collaborate with other uh, similar projects and programs, and we're always down to do that. Uh, so if you're out there and you're doing something similar, you're trying to do something similar, definitely reach out to us. Uh, we love to collaborate and, and just grow this. We need to grow working class media, uh, as part of a broader project to grow working class power. Uh, and so that's what I want to see for the year ahead to, like you said, build on these gains. There was a lot of good momentum uh, throughout 2023. Uh, we saw some historic contracts. We saw some historic strikes. Um, there's historic levels of organizing happening in the South now, uh, particularly through UAW. And so, yeah, I'm just excited about all the stuff we'll get to talk about next year uh, because we'll we'll have some exciting campaigns to talk about. Uh, we'll be able to catch up with New Flyer and Aniston, see how things are going there. That's going to be one of the biggest campaigns in Alabama. Uh, and, of course, uh, Hyundai in Montgomery, Mercedes in Tuscaloosa, Toyota Mazda here in Huntsville, um, Chattanooga, Volkswagen not too far from here. So there's just a lot of excitement happening. You know, unions are a hot thing yeah. in a way that they haven't been in my lifetime, in your lifetime. Uh, and that's really, really exciting to see. The people are behind us. People are waking up to the power that they have when they come together. Uh, and so we're just going to do our small part to get that message out there and continue to connect folks and educate folks. Uh, anything that, that y'all can do to support this, uh, is very appreciated, um, and uh, I agree. It, it is a real honor. Uh, don't take it lightly. Uh, again, it's not about us. It's just about working people yep. and advocating for working people, organizing working people, and us coming together to build the better world that we really deserve. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We do not. We do not take it lightly. Um, we. Uh, we have several long conversations sometimes about how are how are we gonna how are we gonna talk about this or that thing and and what would be the best thing for um, 
uh, for working folks to how, how can we allot our time this week? Uh, what would you know? What, what what would be good to to talk about? To what are stories that we can lift up? How can we be of most uh, of most value to people? Um, so so yeah, we absolutely don't take it lightly, and uh, and and yeah, it's an honor. So um, uh, so it's been a great year, and uh, looking forward to an even better one next year. See you then. Benefit Architects has proudly supported union members and union-made products for over 35 years. If you are a federal employee and an AFGE member, you're eligible for hundreds of dollars in money-saving benefits, including group life insurance, dental insurance, and AFLAC insurance. Additionally, if you're a union member but don't work for the federal government, you can still qualify for several of these money-saving policies. So give Tate Cure a call at 256-215-6769 for details and to enroll. Again, that is Tate Cure at 256-215-6769. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and family members are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough even to keep their jobs. We can fix this. It's time for us to find a way to close the health care coverage gap so that people can remain at work. Let's make this a priority. Let's close this gap and cover Alabama. To learn more and how you can help, visit coveralabama.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. 
Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAT. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senyard Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senyard Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senyard Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senyard Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senyard Law. The name with proven results. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Joe Harrison. This is the guy who's usually behind the camera. Again, not literally. Usually doing the video production stuff, the editing, the graphic designs, the pretty little thumbnails you see on our YouTube channel. If you haven't gone to our YouTube channel, you should go to YouTube and look up the Valley Labor Report. And you can see all of the the beautiful, beautifully done graphic designs, thumbnails, and logos and such that yours truly has done. I am once again here taking you on a little ride, on a little excursion into the past as we look back at some great moments from the past. That's redundant of the Valley Labor Report and that word great, like, I don't necessarily mean like, oh, this is great, this is a happy thing that happened, but great as in significant, because not all of the things that we're going to look back at were good things. In fact, a lot of bad things, like school privatization and child labor. Definitely not great in the sense that we usually use that word. If you've got anything to say, anything that you want to add, you can send a text message or leave a voicemail, and the boys will respond on January the 6th. That's next Saturday. Uh, I do want to do a quick plug for our postage fundraising campaign, which is still going. Again, we'd like to pull in $1,000 by the new year, which is imminent at this time. Every little bit goes a long way because we have big plans for this coming year. 2023 was a great year for us for expanding, and we'd like to really... My brain wants to use the word capitalize, but I just that sends a shiver down my spine. We want to really strike while the iron is hot. How about that? We'll go with that term and just expand even more on the expansion. And you can help us get to that goal tvlr.fm slash postage uh, if you support what we do or if you don't and you're just like I'm going to be generous to show them we will we will accept that we're kicking off this round of best ofs with talking about the kids and how they have found themselves in multiple 
crosshairs on the education front and on the labor front. So let's jump right in. We've been following here in Alabama this this big story. I, I, you know, I think it should be a lot bigger, frankly, because of, of what it is about children, children, like 12-year-old children working for Hyundai in manufacturing environments and not just any manufacturing environment, not just any manufacturing environments, manufacturing environments that have had OSHA fines, violations for amputation and crush hazards, right? So this isn't even just the normal, like, okay, manufacturing is dangerous. This is manufacturing that is so dangerous as to have violated the law. That's where these children are working. And we've covered this story with, in my view, the appropriate revulsion anytime that we talk about this. You know, there's some, you know, uh, to a certain extent, you know, we want to be like a news thing and, and you know, we want to do reporting uh, and we do some reporting and we want to be truthful and we want to, you know, relay the facts and not embellish stuff or, or and certainly not make stuff up. But, you know, there, there's this idea that to be truthful, you've got to be uh, neutral. And that's just... In, I, I just don't buy that. I don't buy that. I think that, you know, you know, we're talking about child labor. I don't think it's that important to be like, oh, yeah, but, you know, the bosses say it's OK. But, but, right. Know, right? Both um, sides. Right. Uh, but and anytime I talk to this story of it with other people, like in my personal life, when I'm talking, you know, most of the people that I know in my personal life are like conservative. Uh, they react the same way that I do. You know, they're like 12 year old children working in manufacturing plants. That's crazy. Because that's appropriate. That's the appropriate reaction when you hear children working in car plants. The reaction should be revulsion. Okay? Uh, I thought we dealt with this 100 years ago. But not everybody has that reaction when they hear about child labor in dangerous environments. In fact, it's quite possible that Iowa (laughs) Iowa Republican State Senator Jason Schultz heard this story actually he it's possible he was listening to us on the radio and said oh man you know what that sounds like a good idea (laughs) that sounds like a good idea because just last week he put forward a bill that would allow 14 to 17 year olds to work in mining meatpacking demolition operating guillotine shears (laughs) and other dangerous jobs People who aren't even old enough to get a driver's permit. 14-year-olds. This guy, a Republican. I mean, you know, it's just, that's a fact, right? This guy's a Republican. Wants to allow 14-year-olds to work as a coal miner. The exact same scenario, you know, the whole, like one of the big things about the child labor laws that we got was because of the public reaction to seeing children with soot on their faces. He saw that picture and was like, hell yeah, that's America, right? Cha-ching, (laughs) cha-ching. I bet that boss saved a lot of money over hiring somebody normal-sized. Less calories, don't you know? It's crazy. And and look, and and look, uh, and here again, I think most people, even conservatives, even people who vote Republican, you know, I I say it's worth noting that he's a Republican because... 
it's worth noting that he's a Republican, that this is what, you know, a Republican elected official is doing, right? And also for, for our previous caller, this is a Republican who said that his, uh, his proudest achievement is pushing a bill that ended collective bargaining rights for public sector workers in Iowa. That's his proudest moment, this guy, right? So, uh, but you know, look, I, I think that most Republican voters are rightly repulsed by this, but that's not all. Under his bill, employers would not be civilly liable if the children are injured or killed, even if the accident happened at work due to the company's negligence. Bills like this are cropping up all over the place, usually backed by the National Federation of Independent Businesses, as reported in the American Prospect by friend of the show, Sarah Lazare, and as we discussed with her on the program a few weeks back. But I mean, this is just crazy. Bosses are so averse to just paying people and paying them well and treating them right that they would let they would literally rather have children go down into the mines than just pay an adult to do it. And, you know, there's some folks who think we ought to be grateful for that. We ought to be right. grateful for those capitalists being willing to employ our children and give them jobs. Yeah. Crazy, crazy stuff. Stockholm um. Syndrome. So let's talk a little bit about education. Uh, there's a lot going on in education when it comes to Alabama specifically, uh, but public education is under attack across the country. Uh, it has been for quite some time, uh, but some of these attacks have really ramped up in, in the last couple of years. Uh, you know, the pandemic really set off a fresh wave of attacks, and, and we've seen it continue since with culture war, uh, push, pushes of the culture war, pushes of uh, vouchers and privatization schemes. We've seen politicians like Ron DeSantis really trying to make a name for themselves by bashing teachers and by bashing public schools and by attacking public education in general. So a lot happening here as well. Uh, you know, Wednesday, May 10th was the Education Policy Committee hearing on the Price Act as well as uh, the Charter School Bill. So the Price Act is the Education Savings Account Bill, uh, which is a you know another name for a voucher program. Uh, so there was a lot of uh, school choice, quote unquote, conversation happening Wednesday in the legislature. And we'll be talking more about that next week. But in the meantime, I wanted to, uh, to highlight an article I found so NEA Today is the magazine of the National Education Association, which, of course, is the country's largest teachers union. And, of course, that comes with the asterisk that uh, many of NEA's state affiliates, including in Alabama, actually reject the idea of unionism and prefer to operate as and be labeled as, quote unquote, professional associations or professional organizations. You know, nonetheless, Jacob and I saw this article from, you know, a month or two ago that was uh, quite helpful, I found. And it's called The Culture Wars Impact on Public Schools. Political attacks that target inclusive curricula and divide communities are undermining public education and its role in educating for our democracy. A new national survey details the impact of pervasive and growing political conflicts on schools. 
Almost half of schools reported challenges to teaching about issues of race and racism and policies and practices related to LGBTQ student rights. One-third reported attempts to limit student access to books in the school library and social and emotional learning. The conflicts often result, result from intentional and organized efforts that have targeted purple or more politically diverse communities. Manufactured outrages designed to divide educators and parents for political gain didn't really work in 2022, a recent NEA survey found. Instead, midterm voters were focused on school safety, the educator shortage, book bans, and other challenges. Unfortunately, as the 2024 campaign season begins to take shape, the culture war on public schools doesn't show many signs of abating. The stakes couldn't be higher, says John Rogers, professor at the Graduate School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA and director of UCLA's Institute for Democracy, Education, and Access. Rogers believes we are at an existential moment for public education and a diverse democracy. Since 2017, Rogers and his colleagues have been tracking how the increasingly divisive and polarizing political climate has sown discord in communities, targeted inclusive curricula, and aimed to undermine overall confidence in public education. The, their latest report, Educating for a Diverse Democracy, the Chilling Role of Political Conflict in Blue, Purple, and Red Communities, finds that in the midst of political conflicts, students have limited opportunities to engage in learning and respectful dialogue on controversial topics, and it's become harder to address rampant misinformation. The highly charged environment has also led to marked declines in support for teaching about race, racism, and racial and ethnic diversity. Meanwhile, harassment of LGBTQ youth has increased. In his research, Rogers surveyed public school principals and found almost half, 45% of principals, said the amount of community-level conflict centered largely around opposition to inclusive curricula during the 2021-22 school year was more or much more than prior to the pandemic. Only 3% said it was less. Rogers recently spoke with NEA Today about how, how polarization and coordinated attacks are preventing many educators from teaching controversial is issues or about our nation's full history. Quote, these attacks are undermining the role public schools play in educating for our democracy, according to Rogers. So check out the full article for the interview with Professor Rogers. I highly recommend that. You know, what's clear to me is that the privatization of public education is inextricably linked to reactionary and segregationist ideology. There's a reason the push for more vouchers, more charters, more attacks on teachers almost always coincide with the so-called culture war fights over issues of curriculum and diversity. They are two sides to the same coin. Whether it comes from the far-right folks like Betsy DeVos or the neoliberals like Bill Gates, ultimately these agendas are intertwined. It is the sabotage of public schools, institutions which are critical to the working class communities that they serve. So I want to recommend folks check out our conversation from a few months back with Dr. Lois Weiner. Uh, where we talked about this very issue in the, the multi-front war on public education and the ways in which public education's attacks from the culture war perspective really is tied to broader efforts of privatization. Um, 
you know, it's it's part and parcel of the same fight. And by and large, it's coming from the same people. It's coming from the same funding sources. It's coming from the same elite class of billionaires who have funded an astroturfed uh, effort to attack public schools. Uh, and you can find these people in Montgomery. You can find them in state capitals all over the country. Uh, you can even find them, in some cases, at school board meetings. And we're seeing more and more astroturfed organizations uh, in the school board level. We had right-wing crazies running for school board in Huntsville back in August. There are groups like Moms for Liberty that are out there uh, causing all kinds of problems. Uh, and, you know, just a couple weeks ago, the governor of Alabama, Kay Ivey, fired the head of the pre-K department, Dr. Barbara Cooper, who was a respected educator. She was fired for being too woke, quote-unquote woke, literally. Just, just really wild stuff, wild stuff. Uh, and it, like I said, it's no coincidence that, you know, this uh, rhetoric around wokeness, which, oh my God, doesn't that just annoy you just to hear people even use that term like that these days. It is it's just the right wing uh, really has just uh, run that into the ground and almost anything they don't like is now called woke. Uh, even basic levels of diversity and appreciation of diversity is now considered too woke by many Republicans. Um, and so they're doing this right at the same time they're pushing for money for private schools, money for religious schools. Uh, they want public school funding to supposedly follow the child and follow the family. Of course, nowhere else do we have that philosophy when it comes to government funding, right? You pay taxes on roads. You don't get to have, you know, a, a road allotment. You don't, you don't have to, I mean, you pay taxes for levels of public services, right? Um, and I don't get to pick and choose whether or not I want to pay taxes to the firefighters or to the police officers. Right? Police officers often do things I find highly objectionable, like kill people. Doesn't change the fact that my tax dollars go there. I don't get a home security voucher right? just because I'm displeased with those services. No one's going to give me $7,000 to install my own home security system to protect myself uh, if I'm not happy with the performance of the police force. It's just not going to happen that way. All right. We don't think about government funding in any other arena in the way that these people are pushing it for vouchers, that the funding, the tax dollars should follow the child. And of course, this is a way to weaken public schools. It is a sabotage because the more they get their way, the more they siphon funds from public education, the weaker the public schools are, the bigger the class sizes are, the higher the teacher turnover is. The higher the shorting staffage uh, among uh, the staffage shorting uh, shortage among uh, support staff, right? The educate special education aides, the cafeteria workers, the custodians, all the people who support the school system actually functioning day to day. You know, they they push this privatization to put more public dollars into private hands, and the more they do that, the weaker our public schools become. And, of course, the weaker they become, the more the demand increases for such alternatives like vouchers and charters. 
it's a vicious cycle. And, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens in Alabama. Uh, but unfortunately, there has not been a broad movement to fight back against this stuff. Not that I'm seeing. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. And, and we do plan to talk more about that next week. And I hope to pull some clips from the committee hearings uh, so you can hear for yourself uh, some of the garbage that's being discussed down in Montgomery. We're going to take our last break here in regular time in our main show on the radio. And when we come back, we're going to take a look at how Alabama finally made it onto a top 10 list, but not in a very complimentary top 10 list. And we look at how our brave state leaders are fighting the good fight against the evils of Medicaid expansion. All of that and more when we return to the Valley Labor Report after these messages. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and neighbors are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough to keep their jobs. We need to fix this. Let's close the health care coverage gap. To learn more, visit CoverAlabama.org. Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, Or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. The Laborers International Union of North America, Local 366, is proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work construction and nuclear plant maintenance. If you're interested, please contact Donna at their training center to start the process. That phone number is 256 415 7452 
Again, that phone number is 256-415-7452. No experience is needed. Free training is offered, but you must be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Local hiring that grows our community with good-paying jobs that have benefits is their mission. Live better. Work union. Local 366. Feel the power. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. I'm attorney Tommy Senyard. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senyard Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senyard Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senyard Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senyard Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senyard Law. The name with proven results. As labor union members, we face our share of challenges in the workplace. But today, I want to talk about a different kind of challenge, the climate crisis. We've all seen the fury of Mother Nature, the storms that can turn lives upside down in an instant. That's why Hometown Action is launching our Climate Protection Project. We're heading out to 10 rural communities, listening to local folks, and taking action with them to protect communities impacted by climate disasters. And we need you, our union brothers and sisters, to join us. Together, we'll make a difference. Our strength on the job is undeniable, and now it's time to put that strength to work for the planet. Let's protect our communities, our families, and our future. Visit hometownaction.org today and sign up to volunteer for the Climate Protection Canvas. Alabama's only union talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name again is Joe Harrison, and we're coming to the final part of our show, at least the final part of our main show. If you have anything you'd like to add, anything you want to say to comment on about what you've heard so far as we've taken this trip into the past, feel free to call or send us a text. Again, we will not be answering your calls as this is a pre-taped episode but you can leave a voicemail, you can send us a message, and we will be live again on January 6th, and we'll be able to respond to you then. The number is 844-855-TVLR. Now, as I mentioned in last week's Christmas special, even though we are referring to this as the quote-unquote final segment of the show, if you are new to this show, you may not know that we continue off the air. Once we are free of the clutches of the FCC, we continue online only, so you can join us there for our special continued segment we refer to as Overtime where we will have more best of videos and other good stuff for you there. You can join us on Facebook or YouTube. Just search for the Valley Labor Report and you will find us. Up next, we're going to be breaking down some really sobering numbers about worker safety in Alabama and also that evil, 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 dark thing called Medicaid expansion. Workers Memorial Day uh, was yesterday, April 28th. Uh, that is the day that the labor movement observes uh, 
and uh, observes Workers Memorial Day. It's when we remember workers that are killed, injured, or made ill on the job. Um, and it's a day to renew our commitment to fight for strong safety and health protections. It is set on the anniversary of the uh, initiation of the Occupational Safety and Health Act, um, which was more than 50 years ago. More than 50 years ago on April 28th, uh, OSHA went into effect. And, you know, it's important to remember that that law was won because of tireless efforts of the labor movement, um, organizing for safer working conditions and stuff like that. Um, after more than 50 years of OSHA, over 668,000 workers can say that their lives have been saved by its passage. And that's according to uh, the AFL-CIO, right, Adam? Right, right. Uh, but... The work is not done. Each year, thousands of workers are still killed. Millions are injured. Uh, hundreds, uh, 100,000 workers every year die because of occupational illnesses. Um, so it's, you know, there's still definitely a lot to do. Uh, the AFL-CIO puts out an annual death on the job report that we're going to be digging into here in a little bit. Um, but uh, w one of the things that they mentioned here in this um uh, it, it is that the the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, as well as the Mine Safety and Health Administration, really, they just lack the resources that they need to protect workers. Um, many employers and uh, workers never even see OSHA in their workplaces. Uh, and the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, reports uh, they show that a majority of employers fail to report workplace injuries due to uh, OSHA's limited uh, procedures and penalties that are still too low to be a deterrent. So corporations exploit those weaknesses and create environments uh, where workers are not adequately protected when they speak out against unsafe working conditions. Black, Latino, and immigrant workers are disproportionately killed on the job, and workers still cannot freely join a union uh, without retaliation from their employers. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, there's some hope. There, there is some hope, right, Adam? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, through the labor movement, that's how working people have won safety and health protections, you know, from the shop floor all the way to the halls of Congress. Uh, you name it, any safety feature in your workplace probably came from the struggle of workers before you. Uh, you know, I was speaking to some high school students yesterday on Workers Memorial Day about uh, this very subject and, and talked to them about, hey, do you like fire exits? Uh, are fire alarms pretty handy in your life? I would mm -hmm. say yes. And the reason we have that is thanks to the fights of the labor movement. And, you know, whether that's historically or today, unions are still today fighting for safe jobs for everyone, regardless of their race or gender or employment or background. Winning strong standards from governments and employers raises the standard of practice for all of us. And educating working people on their rights keeps our most vulnerable from being silenced. The labor movement is a community that comes together to ensure everyone goes home at the end of a work shift, alive and without the chronic illnesses caused by work exposures that continue to plague many workers. And, you know, it's... I know we're going to get into this a little bit more on the report, uh, the death on the job report, but I mean, over 300 Americans die on the job every day now, 
now. I mean, and that's that's not ancient history. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's in the United States of America. And, you know, we just had an anniversary of that that massive uh, garment worker disaster in Bangladesh uh, 10 years ago. Mm. It was just an anniversary there. Um, And so it's just a reminder of how dangerous it is for so many of us to go to work. Uh, We risk our lives and our limbs and our our health and safety. And our government has not taken adequate steps to protect us from exploitative corporations and employers. Because at the end of the day, their goal is to make as much profit as possible. And sometimes our own health and safety gets in the way of that pursuit of profit. And it's up to us to organize to be strong enough to ensure that we can have safe workplaces and we can ensure the government upholds its promise that it was made. You know, this promise was made to us with OSHA that we would have safe workplaces. So, you know, together on Workers Memorial Day is a good time to raise our voices and to speak out for stronger safety and health protections in our workplaces and have stronger job safety and health laws. We have to hold employers accountable to keep workers safe. Uh, We demand action on critical safety and health protections against preventable workplace hazards, such as heat illness, workplace violence, infectious diseases, silica and mining and toxic chemical exposures. We demand more resources from Congress for our nation's job safety agencies to hold employers accountable. And above all, we demand dignity at work. We will organize and fight for the fundamental right of every worker to a safe job until that promise is fulfilled. Let us remember the dead and fight for the living. And so let's talk about some of this, some of these numbers that the AFL put out, because they are really, really staggering. And these are coming from uh, the annual death on the job report uh, from the AFL-CIO, the America's largest labor federation. It's the 32nd one of these reports that they put out annually. And one of the key findings here this year is that uh, black workers and Latino workers are dying on the job more than they have in 10 years. Wow. The highest death rate. I mean, workplaces in America are becoming less safe. Becoming less safe. Uh, in a time where workers are, are where uh, employers, where bosses are bragging about record profits. Here's from uh, the AFL's press release. The report shows the fatality rate for black workers grew from 3.5 to 4 workers per 100,000. And more than 650 died on the job. That's just black workers in just one year. The highest number in nearly two decades. Latino workers have the greatest risk of dying on the job with a fatality rate of 4.5 per 100,000. That has grown 13% over the past decade. There was also a slight uptick in deaths for Latino workers in 2021, and the overwhelming majority who died were immigrants. And uh, Liz Schuler mentions that, you know, the report, it's not just about data points, because behind each one of these deaths, each one of these thousands, tens of thousands of deaths is a person. 
every worker who died, says Liz Shuler, every worker who died on the job represents another empty seat at a family's kitchen table. Every worker accounted for in this report is a person who just went to work one day and never came home. Uh, and, you know, that's really important to recognize. And, and, and there has been studies showing this, that, that when you talk about, you know, once these numbers get so abstract they become less meaningful to people. And so it's important to to not let yourself uh, kind of fall into that trap of uh, uh, of thinking about these as statistics as opposed to as opposed to stories and people. Um, but some of these top line numbers in 2021, 343 workers every day, every day died from hazardous working conditions. About 5,200 workers over the year were killed on the job in the United States. An estimated 120,000 died from occupational diseases. In one year, 120,000. The job fatality rate increased to 3.6 per 100,000 workers. Employers reported and remember, I just told you that the majority of employers do not report work-related injuries and illnesses. And we're going to get to some Alabama-specific data here in a bit. Employers reported 3.2 million work-related injuries and illnesses. The true impact of COVID-19 infections due to workplace exposures is unknown. Limited data show that more than 1.5 million Nursing home workers have been infected with COVID-19 and more than 3,000 have died. That's just the nursing home workers, right? Fewer data are now reported on job injuries and illnesses related to workplace violence, musculoskeletal disorders, and heat illnesses, which continue to be major problems, and underreporting is widespread. The true toll of work-related injuries and illnesses is 5.4 million to 8.1 million each year just in the private industry. Not even in the public sector, which accounts for how much of, you know, how many workers are public sector workers? Like one in 10? One in uh, one in five. It's a lot. It's a lot of workers. Hundreds of thousands, over a million. The report also lays out recommendations for strengthening federal agencies tasked with enforcing worker safety. In 2021, there are 1,800 inspectors. 1,871. 900 at the federal level and 971 at the state level. But in Alabama, there are zero, zero federal. Uh, zero inspectors in the state of Alabama tasked with enforcing worker safety. Zero. 900 inspectors at the federal level, 971 at the state level for more than 10.8 million workplaces under the Occupational Safety and Health Act's jurisdiction. That equates to the Federal Occupational and Safety, Safety and Health Administration having the ability to inspect every workplace. Get this. Once, one time, once, every 190 years. Wow. Once every two centuries is the capacity with which our government has to inspect workplaces. Once every two centuries. Just $3.99 in OSHA's budget 
to protect each worker. Less than $4 per worker is how much is allocated to protect our safety and our health. Penalties for employer violations remain too low to be a deterrent, and fewer than 130 worker deaths have been criminally prosecuted. Get this, not just in the last year. I told you that there were 5,000, 5,000 workers died last year from a work-related accident. 120,000 last year died due to workplace-related illnesses. So having those numbers in your head, I'll give you two or three seconds. Guess how many employer, uh, how many worker deaths have been criminally prosecuted since 1970? With those numbers in your head, 5,000 workers died on the job last year. 120,000 died uh, from workplace-related illnesses. 130 worker deaths have been criminally prosecuted since 1970. 130 over 50 years. That is less than two per year. Two criminal prosecutions every year. When we have tens of thousands of workers dying because of their boss's neglect. AFL Safety and Health Director Rebecca Reindel says that the federal agencies responsible for safeguarding workers were created for a reason and it's past time past time that they receive the funding and staffing they need to create and enforce worker protection standards. Employers should be held accountable for the working conditions on job sites, and our lawmakers at every level must use their power to properly enforce the policies designed to protect us. Some more numbers uh, nationwide. The industries with the highest fatality rates in 2021 were first, the most deadly occupation in the country was agriculture, forestry, fishing, and hunting, with a a fatality rate of 19.5 per 100,000 workers. Mm. That is four times, more than four times the national average. Uh, Transportation and warehousing, 14.5 per 100,000, more than three times the national average. Mining, quarrying, and oil and gas extraction, 14.2 per 100,000, construction 9.4 per 100,000, and wholesale trade 5.1 per 100,000. It's worth noting that uh, law enforcement is not in the top five most dangerous professions. You know, I did notice that. Yeah. Just worth a note, worth a note. Do we need a thin green line? I mean, our, honestly, you know, to honor the folks in agriculture, forest degree and fishing honestly, and hunting. I mean, I, you know, it's a much more deadly occupation. Yeah. We uh, I'm just saying miners, transportation workers, drivers, you know, they don't get any kind of special, special hubbub whenever they die. So let's talk about Alabama. Let's talk about Alabama. I already said in Alabama, we have zero people none nobody nobody in the state of alabama who cares ostensibly about law and order 
nobody in tasked with enforcing workplace safety and health standards. Nobody. There are 27 federal inspectors assigned to Alabama, which gives those federal inspectors uh, uh, the ability to inspect every workplace in Alabama once every 150 years, once every century and a half. In Alabama last year, 111 workers died because of workplace injuries. 32,600 workers died of workplace-related uh, illnesses. We are among the top 10 most deadly states for workers. The uh, number one state being the safest, the number 50 state being the least safe. We are number 43. We had the seventh highest death rate for workers in the state of Alabama. However, and you know this may be related to some of the some some of the numbers that I mentioned earlier, like how we have zero people tasked with enforcing uh, safety and health standards in this state. We have a higher than average fatality rate. I just told you it's among the top ten most deadly states in the country to be if you're a worker. If you're a working person, Alabama is one of the top ten most deadly states. However. Our illness and injury reporting, the, the number of illnesses and injuries reported by employers in the state of Alabama is lower than the national average. Hmm. Hmm. The math isn't really uh, adding up there. Yeah, the math is not mathin' there. The math is not mathin' there. Really, really gross stuff. I guess, you know, should we be surprised to see Alabama rank in the bottom 10 yet again when it comes to our quality of life? Yeah. Um, we have seen throughout the history of the state of Alabama that our state government does not care about working class people. It has made it a priority to support employers and at the expense of employees. That's why we have zero federal inspectors. We have legislators who are now poring over pre-K textbooks to see if anything is too quote-unquote woke. Right. Yet we have zero people who work for state government in this state who are supposed to look at safety and health of working people, which is the vast majority of Alabamians, right? The mm -hmm. vast majority of Alabamians are working class. We don't own anything maybe we own a car perhaps at most but most of us don't own anything we don't live off profits we don't live off rents we don't live off dividends we don't live off interest we live off our wages and yet our state government cares so little that this is the result yeah, zero uh, work inspectors, but we have a lot of woke inspectors. Right? Yes, we do. Yeah, so really great use of, of resources, of state funds. <laughs> Medicaid expansion is, uh, that's a perennial topic of conversation in Alabama politics. Uh, it heats up, especially, uh, well, it heats up at the beginning of every legislative session, but especially at the beginning of a quadrennium which is when legislators feel the least heat from their constituents and, importantly, from lobby groups. 
Uh, it's why we're going to see a big school privatization push this session because parents and teachers have the least recourse right now. But it is also why we will hopefully see a big push for Medicaid expansion this session because the big lobby groups and the conservative AstroTurf organizations that oppose giving health care to Alabamians are going to have less leverage over those incumbents that might vote normally. That might what if they just voted their conscience, they might would vote to give their constituents health care, perhaps. Um, but during an election cycle, those big lobby groups and conservative like anti I mean, just really anti-human organizations, right? I mean, if you're talking about if you're talking about not expanding Medicaid, that is just really an anti-human position, right? Because it it results in the deaths of people. It results in the deaths of people, the economic devastation of communities because it allows rural hospitals to close, um, and uh, it cuts jobs. I mean, it's just really an anti-Alabamian position to be anti-Medicaid expansion, but. Um, so some of the ghouls in Montgomery, they're trying to preempt any conversation about expanding health care access in Alabama. And State Senator Chris Elliott, he is the one at the forefront. He is one of the folks at the forefront of this anti-Alabamian campaign last week on the Jeff Poor Show. He said explicitly that he opposes Medicaid expansion because he reckons that if people don't have literal death, hanging over our heads, we won't work. He says, quote, I'm adamantly opposed to expanding Medicaid. When we, ex when we make it easier for people not to go to work, guess what they do? They don't go to work. And I mean, just think about that for, for I mean, just two seconds. Just one Mississippi, two Mississippi. Think about that. Who the hell is he talking about? I mean, this is even less believable than the people who reckon there are hordes of folks out there that are subsisting on food stamps just because. That are just happy to sit at home and collect food stamps, as if you can do that, as if you can just sit at home and collect food stamps and not work. It's even less believable than that, because who are the people out there that are refusing to work simply because they have access to health care. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. It's also wrong because that's not who Medicaid right. expansion is even targeting. Medicaid expansion targets low-income workers, right? It's people who are already working, yeah. but either cannot afford the private health insurance that is offered at their job or their job doesn't provide any insurance or they're working two or three part-time jobs and don't qualify for benefits these are working people these are people who are going to work they are making money but it's not enough money to qualify for subsidized uh, Obamacare under the ACA but it's too much money to get Medicaid as it currently exists in the state of Alabama it's the coverage gap and it's well over 200,000 people in that situation. Well over 100,000 Alabamians are uh, offered private insurance but can't afford it. Yeah. Over 300,000 people would benefit from Medicaid expansion directly. Not, not the knock-on effects, not the family side effects of having... Yeah, the family side effects of your loved ones not dying. Right. <laughs> Turns out it's great to get treatment when you're ill. God. When you have injuries, yeah. it is great to get assistance. Wow. So, yeah, he's, he's wrong. I mean, he's morally wrong, first of all. But, you know, aside from that, his comments aren't even related to Medicaid expansion that's on the table. It has nothing to do with that.
Yeah. It's just, I mean, it, it is really just astounding. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, I guess why let facts get in the way of, of tropes? Right. Because that's what he wants to traffic in is tropes. Right. And he doesn't want to pay attention to the facts around Medicaid expansion, which would make it easier for people to go to work and easier to stay working. Because, again, turns out when you're not dying, that's it's easier easy. to go to work. <laughs> yeah, it's easy. When you easy break bones, work. it's better mm-hmm. to get treatment. When you yeah. have illnesses, it's better to get treatment. And it's easier to go to work when you actually have health care. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, Strom in, in the chat says, you know, do they not go to work in England where they have a national health service? Of course they go to work. Do they not exactly. go to work in Canada? Uh, of course they go to work. Do able-bodied veterans not go to work with even though they have VA health care? Of course able-bodied veterans go to work. Right. Oh, and by the way, there are 13,000 veterans in the state of Alabama who for various reasons don't qualify for VA and can't afford private health insurance. They would get Medicaid under Medicaid expansion. So I guess Mr. State Senator Chris Elliott doesn't give a damn about those veterans. Of course. Of course he doesn't. You know, he's not interested in chiding the companies who aren't providing health insurance, which creates some of the demand for Medicaid expansion. He's not talking about them. Right. And this is a guy who is of a party that is all about economic development. Jobs, jobs, jobs. You remember that? Mm-hmm. There was literally a sign for Republicans that said jobs, jobs, jobs. I think that was There was one twinkle. that said jobs, not mobs, too, was another one. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 you mentioned this in the notes, that it would be one of the most significant investments in rural Alabama's economic development in decades. Right. On par, you say, with the community college system and the Tennessee Valley uh, um, Authority. Yeah, I, I mean, I really do think... The, if you look at the scale of the impact right. uh, and the ripple effects from that kind of investment, it would be right. on par with those two projects, I mean, which it would change create, rural Alabama. Yeah, create thousands of jobs in rural Alabama, allow rural hospitals to stay open, keep communities afloat, because really a lot of these communities in rural Alabama are anchored by the jobs that the hospitals provide. Right. They have, you know, in the same way that the that they're anchored by the schools or exactly. that, that in the past they were anchored by, you know, uh, a Ford plant or a GM plant or something like that. Right. Or, or, or the paper mill in Cortland. You know, I mean, places like that are now anchored by schools and um and hospitals. And so in addition to, you know, like like you said, the the knock-on effects of, you know, just the direct impacts of, of you not dying and then the not knock-on effects of your loved ones not having a loved one die, there's there's the economic impacts, which are which are massive. The jobs, the investment. Um, so much so uh, that there's a lot of research to indicate that it would probably pay for itself. Now the money, the especially the upfront cost of expanding Medicaid is, is I know, a big sticking point, but it's really, it's it's a very minor sum of money compared to the budget. Uh, there are many, many ways they could raise that money. They have been given many ways by many interest groups, by many citizens, many ideas on how they could raise the money. Uh, yeah. And that's assuming they end up having to really pay much out of pocket at all. And, and I think right. that's an assumption because the economic development that would result the additional tax revenues that would come from this, uh, it, it makes it just one of the most sure bet economic development programs that p- Alabama politicians will ever get to pick from. Right, right. They don't treat it that way, but it is. 
Exactly. Exactly. That's, uh, yeah. And, 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 you know, so the takeaway here is that either this guy is lying or he just has contempt for you, right? I mean, because that's his main argument. It's contempt for Alabamians. It's not even that, that he doesn't even make the case, really, that it would cost too much. It wouldn't, of course, and, and like we said, it would, it would create jobs and it would be good for the economy in the area. But it's just that he has contempt for you and he reckons that you should have just literal actual death uh, hanging over your head before you contribute to society. Um, and, and I pulled this clip from, from well, I was just going to do this segment, but then I actually listened to the, to the segment where he was interviewed on the Jeff Poor Show and I was like, I have to talk about this. I have to play this. Because I want you to actually hear his words. Because he doesn't only want literal, actual death over your head. He wants it over your children's head, too. Let's listen to some of this from his appearance on The Jeff Poor Show. It's reasonable to say you see a lot of the larger business folks and the hospitals in particular starting to put on the show about Medicaid expansion. Um, the Public Research Council of Alabama's starting to make its rounds about the benefits of Medicaid expansion and how important that is. I'm adamantly opposed to expanding Medicaid. Uh, I think it's going to be very expensive and put a huge burden on our budgets. Um, but I think the, uh, the underlying issue that nobody likes to talk about is it changes society. When we have more people on the dole that don't have to go to work in order to get health insurance, we, we end up wondering why is our labor participation rate so so low, and the answer is because, in, you know, in Alabama, half of all the children born in this state are, are born into, into Medicaid or chips on the government dole, half. And, and when we... All right, I got to stop it there. Just to, yeah. just to point out, half of Alabama's births are on Medicaid, okay? So he is resentful for that. Yeah. Rather than asking the question... Why is it half of the people in the state I've been elected to represent, why is it half of the births mm -hmm. are qualifying for Medicaid? Because he knows damn well Alabama is by no means New York or California. Right. Alabama right. is by no means the most <laughs> you know, flexible or, or broad or liberal Medicaid program, even for pregnant mothers, even for teenage mm -hmm. pregnant mothers. So why is it? that mothers in us, our state are so poor that they qualify for Medicaid. That's not the question he's asking. Right. I'll continue. Make it easier for people to not go to work. Guess what they do? They don't go to work. And that's my concern is that our policies change society and the way families function overall. Well, I, I tell you what, I hear that. I don't know anybody, at least on the Republican side of the aisle, obviously there's Democrats that are in favor of it, but, but no, one's, no one's out in front of this one. And this is a big, big, big one. Uh, you know, I, I, maybe it does come up, but who who is going in their right mind on the Republican side of the aisle is going to lead that charge? Who in there? Just stop that for just a second. Just who in their right mind on the Republican side of the aisle would dare give vote to ensure that their constituents have health care? Right. Like, that's so removed from the, what Republicans want to do. It, like, Jeff Poor has, has, has a problem even contemplating that, like, what, there, there are Republicans that, like, care about poor people? No, no, no. I don't think so, Chris. I don't think so. That would be, that would be ridiculous. They, would, <laughs> they couldn't be Republicans if they cared about poor people. 
Yeah, and and the other thing I got to say there, I have to go back for a second, I mean, about the half of births being covered by Medicaid. So would you propose they not be covered by Medicaid? I mean, is Mm -hmm. that really the logical conclusion here from Senator Chris Elliott is that we shouldn't cover them at all? Right. So, I mean, what what does that mean? I mean, do you look back fondly on on the Gilded Age? Do you look back fondly on an era before Medicaid and before any social services at all? I mean, maybe there'll be a a rise in innovation from the churches and the poorhouses and the soup kitchens and the charities (laughs) who are going to take the place. well, I think he's about, I think he's about to answer your question about d- does he does he wish that that these children weren't covered? Oh, uh, so yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. He sure will. I just know that uh, that I am starting to hear it more, and, and you and I've talked about this before. You know, you, you start hearing these little conversations over here from you know Republican business leaders, and and I just I, I, you know, oh, it's free money, and oh, we can't. There's nothing is free money, and again, there's a huge cost to society. When you you don't you don't have to get out there and work to make sure your kids have health insurance, you don't have to get out there and and work to make sure your your children you know are uh, you know you, you have coverage for your children to be born. Um, you know, just it's a scary place to go. I think it, it undermines the fabric of our society. And I had I've heard of employees that say, "Oh, I'm not getting married to my." You know, to somebody I'd otherwise get married to because I can stay on this free state health insurance if I don't do that. That's a state policy that is bad for Alabama and bad for. It's a scary place to go to ensure that regardless of income. Mothers in Alabama can give birth. It's a scary place to go to ensure that regardless of their parents' income, the children will get the care they need. It undermines the fabric of society to ensure that children, babies, have health care regardless of their parents' income. I mean, like, how do you... uh, It's quite revealing. It's really difficult to even... It's really genuinely difficult to even formulate an argument against somebody like that because like we just have such fundamentally different moral compasses. Like I just reckon that I I reckon that even if your parent is one of these hypothetical imaginary no good layabouts that you should still have health care. If you're a child, even if your parent is a no good layabout, you should have health care. And I, I don't I don't know how to argue that point to people like this. Like I don't know how I convince somebody that doesn't think that 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 should be the case. I mean it's just we just have totally just vastly and I think I think that my opinion is in line with even the majority, the super majority of Alabamians who are, you know, the voting Alabama. I mean, of course, most registered Alabamians don't vote, and then most of them don't vote for Republicans. I think it's only something like 26% of the eligible voting population votes for Republicans. So, you know, but I think even among that group, even among that group, I am with the majority of people that say that regardless of parental income, your children should have health care. 
Like, I just don't think that's a radical position. But somebody like him who is so far on the other side of this issue, who, who, who says that, that actually your children's health should be used as a cudgel against you to make you go to work. I mean, I just, I, I just can't imagine, I can't get my head around this guy's morality. Well, I think he said a lot by by bringing in fabric of society, because what he's saying is that for him, the fabric of society is is quilted through punishment, through leverage, through precarity, that the well-being, not just of yourself, but your actual children is dependent on you going out, participating in the marketplace, hoping it goes well enough for you. Because the alternative that this guy proposes is punishment. Yeah. Punishment for children, punishment for babies, punishment for the elderly, for spouses. It's um, it's a level of cruelty that is just, um, yeah, it's hard for us to imagine because we have basic empathy. Man. Yeah. I mean, it, we don't want yeah. children to go sick. Even if their parents are layabouts, like I, I think, don't care what a parent yeah. is. The, the, I, I think that the, the the number of people who would actually fall into that, or just like genuinely like immoral, lazy layabouts, um, I think that the number of people that exist like that are vanishingly small. But I think even if they have children, their children should have health care. Right. Like, I don't care if that person is the worst person. Is a murderer. On Earth. Yes. A literal murderer. If there's a child, the child deserves health care. Just like they deserve a safe, healthy life and a good education and a safe home. It's it's really, and the thing that will piss me off more than anything, and I, and I have intentionally not looked it up because of this, but I would bet you money that State Senator Chris Elliott describes himself as pro-life. Oh, I yeah. bet he's real pro-life. Oh, he's yeah. so pro-life that he thinks it's okay to punish children. Deny children health care because of what their parents may or may not do. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's, it's bizarre. It's I, I can't I can't understand. Makes it. me sick. It, it really makes does. me sick to think that a person with this mentality has any position of authority over other human beings. Yeah. What kind of what kind of mentality does this guy have when he sits down every year for the budget and when he reviews legislation? You think he gives a damn about any of us? No. All right, everybody, that's going to be it for us today on the radio. As always, we really appreciate you joining us. And if you would like to stay with us for our overtime segment off the air, please go to Facebook or YouTube. Look for the Valley Labor Report, and we will be continuing the show off the air, taking a look back at some of the biggest labor stories of 2023. Specifically, the UAW and the Teamsters, so you'll definitely want to join us for that. For the rest of y'all, thanks again for joining us, and be sure to join us again next week as we return to our regular live broadcasting. So thank you again for listening. Hope you all have a great new year, and as always, all power to the workers. 